I was tired of my podcasts. I'd listened to them all. And then we started recording. Two brothers having a ball. We did Dante's Inferno. And then we toured Middle Earth. To Tatooine and Naboo. And Harry Potter's Rebirth. So if you like Killing Townsfolk, or you're played by Claude Rains, if you're not into fire, if you like stealing people's brains, if you like violin at midnight, and wearing cool capes, then you're the Universal Monsters, and there shall be no escape. (laughs) Welcome to the My Brother is a Nerd podcast with Stephen and Carl Mondlott, where we take a look into some of the inspirations behind popular nerd culture. This week, the Universal Monsters. Uh, Okay, I'm ready. One, two, three. La Fontaine de l'Opera. L'Opera. Perfect. Um, well, we did well, it, Stephen. We hey, have Carl. officially begun the podcast. That we have, and I'm, I'm so happy to be here with you today to talk oh, about man. Universal Monsters. I'm, I'm already shaking in my boots from that spooky intro. Yeah, well, thank you. Something kind of came over me as I was recording it, and I, I had to release that pent-up evil that was in there oh god <laughs> everyone knows that the monblock monblock blood is is of evil stock that's right um so carl can you tell us a little bit about what we're uh what, what are we going to be talking about today so steven <laughs> we are going to be talking about the universal monsters specifically yeah Specifically, the Universal Monsters <laughs> of the movies released in the 30s and 40s. Right. Yeah. So Carl is singing the original theme song for this episode. We made some edits to it, but a lot of less the word specifically, which we decided yes. wasn't good for. <laughs> Apparently, that for line, not great for recording purposes, but, you know. Right. And so, by, but so specifically, when we say the Universal Monsters, we're talking about. Monster movies made by the Universal Film Studio um, from about 1925 through 1948-1950. These are the OG monster movies, um, yeah, they- starting with uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, um, all the way back in 1925, uh, featuring Lon Chaney, and uh, petering out in this first era with... Uh, when it when everything starts to get meta and implode on itself with the Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Um, so we're talking Frankenstein, Dracula, the mummy, etc. We're talking Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. We're talking the mummy. Oh, yeah. We're talking the creature from the Black Lagoon, which oh, yeah. sent me down a rabbit hole of looking into Amazonian cryptids. So I can't Ooh. wait to talk about that. Yeah, very exciting. Um, and... Yeah, and The Mummy got me uh, looking into the excavation of Tutankhamun's tomb, so it looks like we'll have a lot to talk about today. Um, So in terms of general overview, 
Um, as we said, so we're talking about movies that started um, around 1925, um, and were usually adaptations of novels, um, like The Hunchback mm -hmm. of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera. Um, those were sort of marginal successes, but were followed up by Frankenstein and Dracula um, in the early 30s. Um, and these were huge successes, um, really uh, blockbusters, um, to, to say the least, fe featuring Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bela Lugosi is probably one of the more well-known actors of this era. Um, and in the Universal Monster universe, even though he only really played Dracula um, in a couple of movies, and we'll get into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also one of the, the werewolves in The Wolfman. The werewolves in The yeah. Wolfman. Um, but yeah, so all of these monster movies based on you know Victorian novels um, eventually fell um, out of popularity at the beginning of the Atomic Era where more sort of um, has science gone too far, mm -hmm. alien invader movies um, became popular in reaction to the um, atomic bomb. Which I think we can all thank the military industrial complex for that. Yeah, shout out to the uh, MIC, military industrial complex, for giving yeah, us like, some great horror movies. Yeah, and just as, you know, the MIC, um, that makes me think of the M. See you. Ooh, right. Yeah. So um, this was one of our first shared universes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Carl? Um, yeah. So just as the MCU or the Marvel Cinematic Universe is one of the more uh, well-known current or now times. Contemporary. Contemporary. Thank you. Um, the now times. <laughs> <laughs> A.K.A. <laughs> yes. AKA the Now Times universe, uh, the the Universal Monsters back in the uh, early part, early half of the 20th century, um, were also a shared universe with mm -hmm. the different um, characters and monsters appearing in different films um, released by the same production company. Right. Um, which was mind blowing. Everyone was always talking about how, like, Oh man, do you think that Frankenstein's going to come in like in in uh, you know the Mummy Civil War? <laughs> Who's going to win? Yeah, and, yeah, definitely started the the idea of the the crossover horror movie, kind of mm -hmm. like Freddy versus Jason stuff yes. like that. Kind of yes. re reclaimed some of that original glory. Um, another way that these movies um, kind of shared the same uh, universe is. Um, they sort of codified what's known as the Uberwald trope. Um, and this is uh, a trope that began in uh, Terry Pratchett and uh, Mary Shelley novels. Um, it's that, we all know this sort of background, vaguely Eastern European, some sort of black forest with a giant scary castle with lightning shooting down behind it. Um, and it's occupied by, you know, a, a very elegant nobleman, uh, with long teeth, or a uh, mad scientist and his daughter, or something like that. Stephen, why are you describing our childhood home? <laughs> right. Yes, we we were <laughs> sons of, of of noble townsfolk, but we eventually escaped. Uh, <laughs> yes, we we escaped the Uberwald, and so the Uberwald. Uberwald. What did what is that? Um, well, it's named after a place in a Terry Pratchett novel. 
that um, has that sort of began this trope of the the sort of weird Eastern European vaguely um, place. And obviously that became a little problematic as more, you know, people from Eastern Europe started becoming interested in horror movies. So this trope has also been uh, exported to different parts. So you can think of sort of like, um, you know, your Southern Gothic horror place, your New England, uh, like rural horror horror town. Really an idea of like, urban is sort of safe and known but the the rural can be sort of like scary and other um is used in this trope wow and uber meaning over and wald meaning forest in german oh really i didn't know that you you i took german but i i didn't remember i didn't remember wald i thought Uh, it was maybe world well it's like schwarzwald is the black forest in germany uh, wow yeah, so the overforest. Um, but yeah, so this sort of trope became so overused because these movies were so popular that this setting kind of became kitsch. And so um, this uh, later media would kind of poke fun at itself and like have um, endearing fun. Like you can think of like Scooby-Doo, the the gang always sort of um, breaks down next to this scary castle and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. I wonder what's going to be going on in there. So um, yeah, moving on. Moving on. All of these movies mm-hmm. um, were right at the edge of a couple of different um, turning points in the American film industry. First right. one being the silent film mm-hmm. era turning into um, sound films. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and the talkies. The talkies. <laughs> the Um And the other being the, um, the motion picture production code or Hayes Code being put into effect. Right, Carl. And so um, this all started with a 1915 Supreme Court ruling um, that said that movies um, were actually not protected under the First Amendment as free speech because they were, quote, purely commercial endeavors, Um, which I thought was kind of a weird argument because um, by that logic, people like Shakespeare and Da Vinci would be considered as true art. Um, but because it wasn't, uh, these movies weren't protected under the First Amendment, um, the government had a lot of um, sway over what could actually be put into a movie and shown to the public. Um, and so in the 19, late 1920s, uh, movies were getting a little bit risque. There was some partial nudity. There was some violence. And so the government uh, wanted to clean up the, um, wanted to clean up the movies and was considering making a censorship board. Um, but instead of having the government step in, all of the film studios bound together and decided that they would follow the same um, production code called the Hayes Code. And there's basically a morality clause named after Will H. Hayes, a former postmaster general, um, because he was the first uh, to enforce the code. And, and so the monster movies, especially the later ones, do you know, push the boundaries of the Hayes Code. But definitely early on, um, because it was so restrictive, the Hayes Code would actually dictate what was allowed to happen, like, in the plot of a movie. Like, um, one of the things that was enforced is that if somebody does something immoral on screen, they had to also be punished for that act on screen, uh, which leads to a lot of sort of last-minute deaths of characters at the end of these movies. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think we'll see in like Dracula um, how they had to kind of change it up at the end because, and they had to like re reshoot or re edit some t- some scenes and 
take out some sounds even so mm-hmm. that um, people wouldn't, you know, faint in the theater. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Don't want a bunch of a bunch of people fainting at the sight of slight slight violence. <laughs> well, I mean, back then, you know, like you know how like showing an ankle was considered like you know re- yeah. really like hot and heavy stuff. Like absolutely, you know, paper cuts were actually um, the most gruesome form of violence seen on film up until that right. point. And yeah. you know, even people who fought in like the Civil War. Who had seen, you know, <laughs> at the Battle of Shiloh, if they saw even like one drop of blood on screen, they would, ugh, man. Yeah, um, but so the, the the Hayes Code wasn't always that restrictive. Like, um, if you think about Gone with the Wind, uh, like, frankly, I don't give a damn. Right? They allowed that because that was from the book, even though you know we were gonna have to slap the explicit tag on this episode. Also, great line, frankly. Yeah. I don't give a damn. Yeah, I use it all the time. Um, <laughs> telling my students, um, I think you marked this wrong. Well, frankly, student. Mr. Boplock, it looks like you said that the Hayes Code started in 1914, but according to... Sorry, I don't know how you got on our Zoom, Mr. Student, but you need to get out of here. I'll see you on Tuesday. Um, but so, another... <laughs> Another no-go uh, due to the Hayes Code was nudity, any sexual behavior, obviously. <clears throat> um, and so that means that, you know, the Universal Monsters, they don't have sex, they don't have gore, um, which actually makes these really good uh, intro movies for people who are kind of squeamish, or maybe if you want to watch a fun monster movie with your kids, um, it makes these really good choices. Um, but that's uh, the reason that a lot of the time, men and women, even if they're married, are shown like sleeping in different beds. Um, and Carl, this is one of my favorite things that I learned uh, in the research for this episode. Um, so in romantic scenes, the Hayes Code dictated that a woman always had to have two feet on the ground during the romantic scene. I guess to see like, so they can't be like lying on a bed. That's a little bit too suggestive. But in order to make, you know, kisses seem a bit more romantic, the woman would lean into the man raising one foot because they couldn't re- raise two. Uh, making it as titillating as possible. And so this is actually where we get the whole idea of uh, women like kicking up their foot behind them as they kiss the man. And that's sort wow. of that the trope of that started from this um, trope. I never knew that. That's yeah. very interesting. Um, yeah. Maybe that's why Sulema always kicks me when I kiss her. Yeah. <laughs> She's just following code. Okay. <laughs> um. Also, uh, religion could not be disparaged anyway. So uh, Frollo in the original Hunchback of Notre Dame is the villain, um, but he is a member of the clergy in the novel. Ooh. But in the um, mm-hmm. in the movie, he's changed into a judge to avoid that. Ooh! So you can't have any sinister ministers, as it were. Very cool. Um, yeah, I got to protect those religious freedoms. Am I right, y'all? Yo. <laughs> yeah. Back back in the day. Hayes was definitely dabbing on all those atheists. Yeah. So that's a good uh, general overview what is going on at the time. Now we're going to dig in a little bit to um, into these specific movies and talk about um, influences, a little bit of analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and Carl, you prepared a little stuff on the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Or um, as the original novel was known as La Faton del Pompon. Yeah. That's, That's great. Perfect French. That's um, perfect. Yeah. You don't need to look that up. 
um, <laughs> which is written by uh, Gaston Leroux, um, yeah. which I believe he also was credited with creating uh, the Roux, which oh, is right. a culinary <laughs> mixture of uh, milk and butter flour? and flour. We have to assume. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but fan of the opera, you know, guy with the, with the mask on his face or half his face lives underneath the, the, um, the theater, you know, we all know the story. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you don't, Steven knows all about it. Oh, he falls in love with, um, a sort of backstage singer who becomes, you know, the star, uh, and there's a, uh, chandelier that falls um, yes. halfway through. It's very, it's, crazy. it's chilling. Yes, and he does the organ like. Yeah, fifteen um, more minutes of that, please. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the most badass fan of the opera song, in my opinion. It's pretty good. Um, but it was actually so it was based on the this novel. And mm. the novel itself is based on actual historical events or supposed, in some cases, historical events that happened in in the great city of Paris um, at the Paris Opera in like the 19th century. And um, there was one story that I that I read about that um, was extremely spooky. Um, mm. There was a ballet pupil named Carl Maria von Weber, or no, in Carl Maria's von Weber's 1841 production of Der Freischutz, mm-hmm. which is that not a Wagner show? Tying it back. Ooh, right, yeah, back back to old uh, Rickard. Yes, Rickard um, W. And uh, I I looked into the. Um, looked into it and I came upon a podcast called bone and sickle, which I'll put a link to their podcast is it looked very interesting. Um, so you'll have to look, you'll have to check that out. See, mm-hmm. um, in this 1841 production, there was a human skeleton that was used in the production. Oh, that of, is so and spooky. it turned out that it was a real human skeleton ah. of a dancer who, um, had died in the theater in 1787 named uh juan maison wow poor juan and he he had fallen in love with a dancer in the opera who but it was an unrequited love oh my god because the the dancer preferred like the sergeant major of the opera typical dancer yeah you know what a sergeant major of an opera is right i am the very model of a modern major general is that what you're talking about I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sergeant Major of the Opera. No one. Is it? It's probably a character in the opera. Yeah, or maybe like a like barrister. Do the operas barrister, have barrister? The opera. Making <laughs> <laughs> um, sure everything's happening up to snuff in the opera house. Yes. What? But Juan Maison died yeah. brokenhearted. No. And he requested for the theater uh, coroner. <laughs> I feel like you have very different ideas of who is involved in an opera than no, there, I do. Okay, this one there there was like some doctor or whoever okay. did like okay, a, a doctor makes me <laughs> at the opera to preserve his skeleton uh, so he could still be 
close to her who he dearly loved. Wow. That's messed up. So even in death. Mm-hmm. But super super spooky. So yeah. Another uh, another note, the theater from Fan of the Opera is based on a um, an actual theater back in Paris called Palais Garnier. Great. Um, which is supposedly haunted. Ooh, spooky. Um, and one of the cool things is in the move in the um, in the books in the movie, there's uh, like a lagoon under the theater, right? Mm-hmm. And there's actually a lagoon under Palais oh, Garnier, cool. and um, it's actually it was, I believe, used like in the architecture because the like the groundwater would come and like fill up and they were just like fuck it just like make it a lagoon and wow. it was also you it's it is also used for like um uh like fire the fire department still to this day uses that as like a like training for like water operations oh interesting yeah which is super spooky the fire department <laughs> <laughs> The opera fire department. <laughs> yeah. So there's an opera, opera barrister, <laughs> opera corridor, and the right. opera fire department. It's a large production. <laughs> Which, I mean, it's not that crazy. Like, I guess a little crazy. But yeah. but these firemen, instead of putting out the fires, they start the fires. That is very spooky. And um, I, I know what you might be thinking. What you might be thinking, oh, listener. How is the Phantom of the Opera a monster movie? Um, And one of the things that The Phantom of the Opera has in common with a lot of monster movies is this question of what makes a monster and what makes a man. Um, A lot of these monsters are part human, part monster, instead of being just entirely this evil monster that wants to kill you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's shown very poignantly in The Phantom of the Opera with the mask. He's half something and half man. Um, Yeah, it's very liminal yes these are liminal figures that's what makes them so monstrous to us makes us need to look at them and decide what category to put them in um and uh this is sort of a if you ever heard of the uncanny valley carl um it's the closer you get to human the weirder it is Mm -hmm. so yeah so yeah and yeah the phantom being like he's just a human who is has monstrous intentions more or less right Mm-hmm. Very like all of the the rest of the monsters of the universal film universe the closest that that would be in my opinion uh related to would be the invisible man mm-hmm. right so we'll talk about that when we get to it um yeah. but yes very good point Stephen. um and one of the the last couple things here for the phantom of the opera mm-hmm. um there's a scene in the phantom of the opera where the chandelier falls crashes to the ground and everyone is super spooked out um and that actually was inspired by an incident in 1896 at the palais garnier when a counterweight right of the chandelier crashed through the ceiling um due to a fire on the roof and killed a concierge the opera concierge yeah, the opera. He was standing right next to the opera the barrister. Yeah, that's terrible. A uh, little. Uh, I'll keep that concierge in my mind. Thank you for making our podcast slightly more interesting. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> Sorry, that was a little dark. <laughs> <laughs> well, he he's been dead for over two hundred years, so he's over it. Wait, hold on. No. Eighteen ninety six, nineteen ninety six, two thousand. <laughs> Doing some quick maths here, Carl. I think that's at 126? least... 126? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure that's something like around like 200 years. <laughs> it's one or the other. There's, it's impossible to find out for sure. Yeah. Sorry, this isn't the math podcast, you flippin' nerds. <laughs> um, also, a note that was unrelated to anything else was there was a 1943 remake of Phantom of the Opera that was directed by Arthur Lubin, who also okay. created... The talking horse, Mr. Ed. Wow. And gave Clint Eastwood his first contract. Yeah. Um, wow, that's so interesting. Um, Mr. Ed is sort of a liminal character in himself. You know, half man, half horse, in a, in a way. Yeah, he's... No, he's not. Oh. He's not a centaur. <laughs> oh, right. Centaur. But he, he has the mind of a man. And, um, and Carl, because you said centaur, I think it's time for us to take a little break before we move on to the... Uh, bonafide monsters, um, the bona fide monsters yes. of the um, of this monster era. So uh, we'll be right back after a message from uh, our sponsors. Our sponsors, um, C- Centrum. Uh, it's a uh, it's a vitamin that will turn you into a centaur. That's Centrum. true. This is true. Possible 100%. side effects may include lust for oats. Lust for non-oat horse things. <laughs> uh, lust for hay, some yummy Com- hay. Compulsive horse shoeing. Um, gallop, galloping through the field. <laughs> <laughs> um, Terminal galloping. <laughs> side effects include um, being a good mentor because you have, oh. have two perspectives. Mentor the centaur. Um, All right. And we're back. And we are Again, back. thank you to um, uh, Centrum for sponsoring our podcast. If you are looking to um, become half horse, half man, Centrum. Yeah, quick note to our, um, our other sponsor, um, the law offices of um, anti... If you are, were a victim to Centrum, <laughs> please call yeah. the number. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, to to join the civil case against them um i would say we play both sides yeah we're just the messengers yes so Stephen. yes um what do you know about count dracula um well carl so um much like the um, early... Oh, I thought you were going to keep going with the background. <laughs> Much like the early... Um, all of these early monster movies, right, are based on novels, right? Um, and there was this trend um, in Victorian um, horror writing of uh, these mysterious horror gritty novels Um so as Europe was kind of moving in this more enlightened way, focusing on science and rationality and reason, there was sort of this uh, countercurrent at the same time of the mysterious, the other, um, sort of east versus west, urban versus rural, and that's where we get Dracula, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, you know, we all, that's where we also get the Crips and the Bloods. 
um, you know, Tupac and Biggie. No, so Dracula. Yeah. Um, based on the um, the the book of the same name by Bram Brammy Bram Bram Stoker. Mm-hmm. Yep, Bram Stoker. Bram Stoker. Um, and the film stars Bella Lugosi, mm-hmm. and Bella Lugosi is a Hungarian-born actor um, who uh, portrayed Dracula on the on Broadway, actually before the movies. And he his portrayal of Dracula actually is what all of the other like pretty much now that like hundred years later almost like we base all of the other Dracula portrayals on Bela Lugosi's like, Oh, I'm Dracula. (laughs) And (laughs) did you know, Steven Mm -hmm. Dracula was shot at the same time as a Spanish language version of Dracula called Dracula. (laughs) Oh. <laughs> and so wow. they would film the English version during the day and the Spanish version during the night. Oh, wow. Which must have been real spooky. Yeah, that um, spooky. And there was actually, because this was all right around the time that the talkies were overtaking the, um, I believe they were called non-talkies. Right. Before, yeah. before they invented talkies, they would call them the non-talkies. Yeah. Um, and there was a silent version of the film that was also shot at the same time. Oh, wow. So you could take your pick, Spanish, uh, English, or none. Which, yeah, I'm, I'm th- I feel like the film industry was actually very pro-deaf people Yeah, at the beginning. That's true. And then it kind of really marginalized them as far as, um, you know, their deaf audience until subtitles were invented Yeah, by um, Michelangelo, Michelangelo Subtitulo. <laughs> I was really following that for a second. I thought you were being serious. I'm sorry, um, Stephen. I'm sorry that I pulled you along on that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Lugosi, he established Dracula in like popular culture, um, mm-hmm. and is the archetype of all other vampire characters in later right. works. Mm-hmm. Um, and a very interesting person who worked on dracula is jack donovan foley and uh jack foley is what the term foley artist is referred why we have the term foley artist Mm -hmm. because a foley artist now is um a person who creates sound effects for movies and back when the talkies were first happening they had to kind of like they were like as they were going along kind of learning like okay like how do i like make this like sound like they're walking on snow or something mm-hmm. um and foley had worked in radio before coming to universal and so with all of those radio dramas where you had to like really be immersed in the story mm-hmm. they had developed all these uh, all these sounds that um, like the creaking of doors. Ooh, perfect. <laughs> Bit of a fully artist yourself, girl. <laughs> um, 
And but for Dracula and for like those early movies, he did the whole thing in one take, just watching the movie and then like as people were walking, be like, "Oh no way, really?" Yeah. Oh, cool. Um, which now we can obviously just record all of those. Like, all right, here's someone walking up the stairs. Yeah. And then we can just drop that in every time someone's walking up the stairs. Um, yeah. But a couple of fun things about Foley artists. Um, if there's a, a head or bone injury, they take frozen mm. romaine lettuce. Yeah. And break it to Ooh. make the sound of bones. Yuck. Um, and the, the, you know, famous from uh, the Monty Python, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The coconuts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I believe they just did that because they couldn't afford horses. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so, and then Dracula inspired um, a, a handful of remakes. Um, right. There was the original Dracula, Dracula, um, and then the silent Dracula, and then there's Dracula's daughter, son of Dracula. Uh, Dracula's also in the movie House of Frankenstein. Oh. And then the House of Dracula. And then Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Wow. Yeah. All over the place. And a lot of, um, there was at least a few scenes that were lifted for um, Dracula from an earlier movie called Nosferatu, Mm -hmm. which was an unauthorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's work. Oh, really? Yeah. And the, like, it was when uh, one of the characters, Renfeld, accidentally pricks his finger on a paperclip and starts to bleed and Dracula like starts creeping towards him <laughs> only to be repelled when a crucifix falls in front of the bleeding finger. Ooh, that's so good. Yeah. Um, um, and quick, quick uh, note about the word Nosferatu. Etymologically, it comes from uh, a Greek combination of two words, uh, nosos, which means uh, disease and pharos. So Nosferos means someone who's uh, carrying a disease, which is kind of oh. interesting. Wait, what does Pharos mean? That means, like, bearing. It's actually, like, directly related to our word bear with a B. It changed from, like, a PH to a B sound. Like when you bear a burden or something. Oh, not like a bear. That Roar! Yeah, yeah, I think that's... A it. disease bear? Imagine. Yeah, a disease bear. That would be a scary movie. Yeah. Oh, well, kind of interesting, Carl. Um, we actually don't know the ancient word for bear because people were so afraid of bears in antiquity that um, they were afraid that if they said the word, it would pop up and eat them. So um, all of the words that we have for people talking about bears are sort of stand-in words that just mean like big animal or something like that. Oh, wow. I never do that. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, yeah, so a Nosferatu... Um, that term actually comes from an earlier work that um, Bram Stoker had um, read by an uh, author named Emily Gerard, um, mm-hmm. an article about Transylvanian superstitions. And Nosferatu was kind of used uh, uh, interchangeably with vampire. Which is so scary. Very it's, scary. Yeah, a Romanian and Transylvanian, which I believe at the time of Bram Stoker writing uh, Dracula was still part of Austria-Hungary. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and Dracula is based on a Romanian 
ruler, Vlad the Impaler. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the Slavonic genitive, obviously, Stephen. We know all about the Slavonic genitives. All, all day, every day. Of Slavonic genitive form of Dracul, meaning the son of Dracul or the dragon. Because um, his father was Vlad Dracul. Mm-hmm. Um, and in modern Romanian, in the Romanian language, Dracul means the devil, which Whoa. is because of Vlad's reputation. Which oh, interesting. Because nice. he would impale people? Yes. Um, everyone always said, that Vlad, no good. <laughs> I believe that was the quote. Yeah. Um, but Stoker, mm-hmm. not unlike Carl, right. didn't know that much about Vlad the Impaler. <laughs> <laughs> and he just kind of like was going through all of like his notes and was just like, oh, that guy's name is pretty cool. All right, put it in. Yeah. So he's based on Vlad the Impaler basically in name only and not in like... Vlad the Impaler wasn't a vampire. Steven, Vlad the Impaler wasn't actually a vampire. Uh, we're going to need to cite a source on that as one, far- Carl. All right, hold on. Let me um, <laughs> cite the story. Oh, the Bible here. Vampires oh, don't exist. Thank you, Bible. Um, yeah, but you can definitely see Stoker pulling on some of these ideas of, you know, living in modern uh, Western Europe. It's modernizing, industrializing, um, but we still have this mysterious mm-hmm. Eastern impaley person to draw on for um, for the horror. Yeah, because he comes from this the, from Eastern Europe and Transylvania to London in the books and the oh, movies. Cool. Um, where he does gets into, gets into all sorts of hijinks. Yeah. And Dracula. Do you have any other questions on Dracula? I I am the preeminent Dracula scholar, Stephen. Yeah. Um, well, the Dracula movie is definitely a lot different from our modern vampire depictions, right? Although it does sort of set the standard for how vampires work, quote unquote, in fiction, like. Um, crucifixes, repel them, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. sort of um, sneaking into people's rooms at night. Um, But an interesting thing, or at least something I find interesting about that, is the whole idea of being invited in. Okay. Um, So in the the movie, right, there's these two sort of female characters, Lucy and Mina. And Lucy is a bit more of like this loose character who, I mean, obviously in stereotypical gender uh, portrayals of that time um, isn't as like sort of pure or chaste as, as Mina. And so Lucy like invites um, Dracula in and there definitely is like sort of a sexual connotation that um, gets through and I think helped make Dracula as popular as it became while still um, abiding by the, uh, the rules of the Hayes code. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. And then obviously they just got sexier and sexier until we got twilight. Um <laughs> Yes, I think that Robert Pattinson is the most sexy Dracula that there has been. Um, yeah. And you can you can write that down. Yeah. That's, a, that's a direct quote from... That's that's our, our take. Yeah, that was Bela Lugosi when he saw Twilight. was like, damn, <laughs> that boy, fine. Pattinson can get it, okay. <laughs> Which he played Cedric Diggory in Harry Potter. Oh, I didn't... Yeah, I didn't really put that together. Wow. There's vampires in Harry Potter, too. Um they're vampires in Harry Potter. Yes, hundred percent. Yes, I can guarantee that. 
I don't remember that. That's crazy. I will bet you 25. Oh, I'm not saying I don't believe you. How is it? <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't remember there were vampires. That's crazy. Gaddians. Um, <laughs> forgot what I was going to say, but it was probably really dumb. So, Moving um, on to Frankenstein? Moving on to, to our boy Frankie. All right. So I just want to start off this discussion of Frankenstein by saying I understand that it's Frankenstein's monster. Um is what? the name of the creature. There's this misconception, right? When people say Frankenstein, you picture this big green guy with the things coming out of his temples. Yeah, that's Frankenstein. No, oh, but Carl, here's the thing. That is not Frankenstein. The monster in Frankenstein is actually never named, which is why we call it Frankenstein's monster. I know, I know. It's very confusing. Mm. Are you sure, Stephen? I'm sure, yeah. In researching this, I, um, I really made sure that I, I learned that. Uh, and so Boris Karloff plays Frankenstein's monster. But a lot of this confusion about what we call the monster is actually because of Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Because in that movie, they meet the monster, but they call him Frankenstein, even though that's the name of the doctor who creates him. Ah. So if you're confused, you can blame Abbott and Costello, which is who I usually blame for all of my problems. Uh. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Throwing shade. Okay, so this uh, movie is based very, very loosely on the Mary Shelley novel. I'd say about 15% of the content actually makes it into the movie. Um, there's several characters who are added. In the original, Carl, um, the the monster isn't this sort of uh, almost like semi, semi-cognizant semi um, creature, but is actually like very sentient. And oh. it, <laughs> Besides doing a lot of grunting, he also reads Paradise Lost. He speaks fluent French. That was French. (laughs) 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 Give me the baguette. (laughs) Um, An interesting uh, note about this movie is it really gives us a lot of um, the stereotypical mad scientist tropes that we see in later depictions in media. Um, you know, so this is definitely, you know, the epitome of Uberwald in the laboratory with the lightning in the background. Henry screams, uh, it's alive, right? Uh, if you haven't seen that scene, I would definitely recommend watching it because it definitely holds up. It's very cool. It's probably in the public domain now, so maybe we can just drop it in right here. Ooh, yeah. Uh, potentially. I tried to watch it, but it looked like I had to pay $3 on YouTube. Well, I think that they released... I feel like, I believe that they like released all those movies for yeah. free on YouTube like today. Yeah. I was going to watch them yesterday, but it turns out that's not available in the U.S. So all of our listeners in England, I hope that you uh, enjoy all, watching the Universal All two of you guys. All both of you. I know you guys exist. But we have, we have listeners all over the world. England, Evidently. Canada. I could South, go on. South Africa. <laughs> Oh, really? South Africa. Wow. Uh, must have clicked on it by accident. Uh, wow. No, I'm just kidding. Steven. I'm just kidding. Oh We're my great God. podcast. <laughs> um, this is a high-quality podcast. We only do <laughs> top-notch, top-notch research, and we we hit on the hard-hitting subjects. That's true. Uh, so back to, back spe- to Predicate Science Monster. <laughs> yeah, speaking of hard-hitting subjects, um, Henry yells you know it's alive right the quote that we all know but did you know carl after that a line is actually obscured by a lightning or a thunder um sound that was Mm -hmm. uh, added in in post because henry actually says now i know what it feels like to be god 
Um, and the Hayes Code decided that that was too blasphemous, and so they had it covered up. And the original version of that line was not actually heard until 1999. Um, and so it, it kind of reminds me of um, Planet of the Apes, right? Mm-hmm. God damn you all to hell! Um, and I learned, uh, interestingly, that that line actually made it past the Hayes Code because... Um, they argued, oh, well, he's actually literally damning these people to hell. So it, it doesn't count as blasphemy, um, which I thought was kind of interesting. He's damning these dirty apes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, if you wanted to know how it feels like to be God, he should have just learned how to play Dungeons and Dragons and been a DM. <laughs> it's because true, you could just yeah. make it up. If only D&D had been, um, you know, invented by that time, he could have saved all of this trouble because um frankenstein uh, in the movie accidentally kills a woman or a little girl which is very sad, it is um, very sad Steve. because he um he equates her to these flower petals that he plays with um and so the the famous torch and pitchforks uh scene uh is codified in this movie of you know all of the townspeople getting together but uh it's kind of interesting that we think of torches and pitchforks because in this movie the, the crowd actually has no pitchforks. Um, so oh. it's it's something that was added as people remembered this trope and it got spun around our cultural memory. Why do they add pitchforks? I guess, you know, they're thinking like, what do farmers have? And threw in pitchfork, pitchforks. It's supposed to be the, the regular townspeople rising up against this monster. Have you ever used a pitchfork? Um, I think I have, yeah, when I was mulching. One mulching. Time. Yeah. Even when we would go to the giant mulch pile. I remember the mulch pile. Yeah, I used that thing a lot. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Our life um, was basically all mulch until yes. I graduated high school. I would school. say, yeah. Our, our upbringing was 60 to 75% mulch. Definitely. Um, <laughs> but also gives us uh, the, the trope of the, the hunchbacked henchman. Uh, which in the original is Fritz, and then in Son of Frankenstein, that's actually where we get the Igor character. Igor. Igor. Um, and so, yeah, Fr- Frankenstein definitely gives us a lot of these um, mad scientist tropes, the idea of hubris trying to be be like God and having that uh, be punished. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and also the idea of, like, what makes you human. So he's, like, literally made up of all of these different parts of humans. Um, and he's also a liminal being, just like the next uh, creature we'll talk to, or talk about, not talk oh to. Oh my God, you have him here? <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> um, Steven, yeah. what's your favorite Frankenstein movie? Uh, it's definitely um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Mine oh, no, 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 sorry, sorry. Um, what's the one with, put it on the Ritz? <laughs> yeah, Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein, that's it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was that's the funniest. Yeah, it's very good. I would I watch a braid called Abby Normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. So just like Frankenstein, our next spooky creature that you could find mashing it up in the Monster Mash is the Mummy, Carl. Uh, so the Mummy came out um, uh, a couple years after Frankenstein and Dracula made their big splash. And uh, they brought back Boris Karloff, who also played Frankenstein. Um, and you could tell they were really trying to 
keep this horse running. They were trying to milk all they could from these monster movies and were trying to make the mummy as much like Frankenstein and as much like Dracula as they could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I think of the mummy, I also think of like, oh, yeah. oh my feet in front. <laughs> yeah, those French pharaohs. Uh, so directed by Carl Freund, who also directed Metropolis and was the cinematographer for Dracula. Um, so this was their first uh, deviation from those Victorian novels. Um, this was the first universal horror movie to not be based on a novel. This was an original um, original idea that came out of this um, uh, excavation of the tomb of King Tut, Tutankhamun, that happened uh, in the early 20s. So Carl, did you know after they excavated King Tut's tomb, 20 of the excavators died mysteriously? Oh. Um, which magazines really hooked on to, calling it the, the curse of Tutankhamun. Um, and magazines lied about it, saying that the sarcophagus was inscribed with hieroglyphics, stating that death would come to any who opened. Oh, you mean the lamestream media? The lamestream media, lying about the tomb of King Tut. Um, but this actually gives us uh, the plot of the mummy, right? Um, but also the beginning of a lot of these ethnic curse stereotypes that we see mm-hmm. in a lot of horror movies, like disturbing an Indian burial ground, disturbing a gypsy curse, uh, voodoo, which definitely, you know, I think is tapping into a little bit of, um, you know, fear of the other, fear of these, you know, other sort of cultures that we don't understand, but also like a little bit of white guilt, especially with the, uh, the Indian burial ground mm-hmm. trope. Um, finding its way to like deal with these cultural phenomena in um, in horror. Yeah, well, I'm glad that they made movies about it instead of doing any real, you know, social justice to those minor uh, marginalized peoples. So, yeah, good on yeah. you guys. Yeah, well, I guess um, Marlon Brando, right? He he tried a little bit. True. Yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah, but so The Mummy, I think, is interesting because just like Frankenstein, he's this sort of zombie character who is brought back from the dead. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you really you really feel for The Mummy, just like you feel for Frankenstein, because they start um, this idea Steven. of the... What? Oh, Frankenstein's monster. Even <laughs> Right, Frankenstein's monster. I apologize. Wow. All, wow. all Mary Shelley hardcore fans who just uh shot daggers at me with their minds well um, i was definitely doing that <laughs> we would have gotten so many angry emails i know you saved us um but so in this um i think the way that the mummy and frankenstein are similar is because uh just like the wolf man that we'll talk about later as well they're kind of uh, unwilling monsters they don't want to be monsters and also they just want regular things like frankenstein just wants to like you know, observe beauty. The mummy the whole time is trying to um, mummify the reincarnation of his uh, wife from ancient Egypt. So even though they're like evil, quote unquote, they're really just trying to survive in a world that brought them back. Um, It makes you kind of feel for them, I think. Yeah. And also he had to be wrapped up in toilet paper that whole time. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, he never ran out. Do mummies? I'm just going to leave it. Leave it at that. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, Croc, how about you tell us a little bit about um, next up, kind of a mummy-ish character, the Invisible Man. Um, The Invisible Man. So this is one of the 
Um, I touched on a little bit earlier, but this is not so much a a monster himself as as we would think, maybe. But he is a a man who has monstrous qualities. Mm-hmm. And this movie is based on the Invisible Man book, which um, it stars Claude Rains as the Invisible Man, which not really in the movie that much. <laughs> so um, they did the effects. Uh, were pretty interesting where they just had like a black velvet background mm-hmm. and they just because in the movies like if he had clothes on it would just be like on his body but you couldn't see his like skin and body yeah and he would just wear be wearing like a black velvet face covering so oh, that you couldn't see it and so it just looked like invisible oh that's sweet um but he in the movies he plays like a mad scientist who um like figures out how to become invisible, but does not know how to become uninvisible. And the side effects of this, of this potion, this, these chemicals that he ingests, um, turns him mad. And so he goes on, like he becomes mad with power. Like he's going to just take over the world because he, he's like, there are no consequences because he's invisible. Um, and so he like goes around killing people and, um, it's it. I mean, out of all the monsters, he's probably the most um, diabolical. Yeah. Or malicious. Mali- Maleficent. I believe that's the character from Cinderella. But I think. What am I thinking? She's of? named after a word. <laughs> she is named after a word. I think it's malicious. Malicious. Okay. Which is my my stripper name. Hey. It comes malicious. Coming out the side hatch. <laughs> and then I stab you. Um, and the, the, the book and the movie is actually based on, or it was inspired by um, a, a story called The Perils of Invisibility by W.S. Gilbert, um, which uh, has a couplet that says, Old Peter vanished like a shot. But then his suit of clothes did not, Ooh. which is how they got the uh, inspiration behind, like, you know, if he wears clothes, not invisible. That's beautiful. Um, and it's also uh, based on a, a a book that is close to Stephen's heart called Plato's Republic. Yeah. Um, and Stephen, I'm just going to turn this over to you. I feel like you have maybe oh. a couple things to stay on the Republic. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually, I just read this in your notes now. Oh. Um, our notes yeah it seems like uh a lot of the inspiration for the invisibility comes from the story of the ring of gyges which Mm -hmm. um, allows you to turn invisible um and uh in plato's republic he uses this as a way to talk about the nature of justice Mm -hmm. um which i think the the movie does a good job of touching on those same points Um, yeah like if can you be a just man if no one's watching like the actions that you're doing when no one can see you doing them Mm-hmm. which very um, timely, our father sent us a Bible verse. Mm-hmm. I believe it's Matthew 6, saying that the right hand should not know what the left hand is doing, and you shouldn't do things just to be able to, just to be seen like uh, being charitable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, great, great tie-in. Um, shout out to you, sir. Yeah, shout out to sir. Um so yeah, that's the Invisible Man. Um, 
Moving on to the wolf man. Oh, actually, um, before we oh, move yeah, on, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, tie, uh, you know, a little crossover action here. The ring of Gyges makes you invisible. Not unlike a certain other ring. Yeah, the ring of power from which uh, Lord of the Rings. Tolkien never said that it was based on that. But yeah, but Tol- Tolkien po- was really into like um, saying that he had no. It was an allegory at all, and mm-hmm. there were, like, no influences, but we all know. Well, I mean, I think that the, the it, it definitely inspired the the Nibelugan, the the ring in the Nibelugan. What? Why are you laughing at me? <laughs> I, I just think it's funny how every podcast we talk about the Nibelugan. <laughs> well, the Nibelugan is apparently very in, ingrained in the culture of yeah. the nerdy shit that we talk about. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, invisibility is a really interesting concept. Like yeah. We've talked about a few times. I think that the Invisible Man is probably, like, one of the most, one of the more, like, deep, mm-hmm. what am I thinking of, more complicated characters in the yeah. universal cinemat- cinematic universe, whereas a lot of the creatures like Frankenstein's monster or the mummy, or mm-hmm. you can see in some of these later, the ones we're going to talk about, like, they kind of just have, like, their drive is like, I'm going to, you know, kill people. But the, yeah. you, this guy is like, he was a good man. Right. And um, he didn't have these tendencies that he wanted to go and kill people. It was because he became invisible and either it was like the side effects of this chemical or just like he gets a God complex where he is like, I can do anything now. It mm-hmm. is my time. Um, like he just, he comes drunk with power and, um, the effects are to the detriment of society. Right, yeah. Kind of like uh, Dr. Frankenstein when he feels that he's become a god. Seems to be like um, you can be monstrous in being like half animal or you can be monstrous in like trying to be half god, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or you could be half wolf, um, just like the wolf man. So this was an all star cast. We got Lon Chaney Jr., we got Claude Rains, we got Bella Lugosi. Um, fun fact, Bella Lugosi plays a werewolf named Bella. Um, I guess they just thought, he's, he's got a cool enough name. We can just leave it at that. Um, but we're firmly situated in the Uberwald. We got lots of fog. We got an old castle. We're set in rural Wales. Um, and well, s- rural Wales? Is that a uh, is that a, uh, redundant? <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey oh, High five. Yeah, yeah, take that, Wales. All of our... All of our uh, UK listeners, <laughs> yeah. you guys know what we're talking about. Um, so this was originally supposed to be a psychological thriller, Carl. Um, at the very beginning, uh, Larry, our ma- main character. By the way, I just think it's hilarious that there's a werewolf named Larry. <laughs> Larry. Can't really take that seriously. Um, but he uh, he buys this cane, and at the top of it is a silver wolf. Um, and that, Ooh. you know, definitely some foreshadowing there. Um, But he gets attacked by a wolf, gets bitten, and then he, like, beats it to death with his cane. And then uh, you look back at the body, and it wasn't a wolf at all. It was a man. (sighs) And so the whole time, originally, it was supposed to be he's, like, not sure if he's going crazy or if he's, like, actually turning into a wolf. um, Which is why there's a little bit of inconsistency in the movie that Larry is shown as, like, a Yeah, Larry the werewolf. (laughs) Is like, <laughs> and Larry's different from Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But so Larry, Larry is walking on two legs. He's bipedal and he's kind of turning into a wolf while Bela, the other um, werewolf, is like full all fours or werewolf. And I think that's a little bit of a um, allusion to the fact that originally we, the audience wasn't supposed to be sure if he was actually turning into a wolf. Because Invisible Man was also a little bit of a um, more psychological thing, but that was not as popular as the, the typical big scary monster movies so maybe Mm -hmm. they thought that's not what the audience at the time wanted yeah true and they came out not they came out a decade between the two of them so i was going to try to make it make a comment about how they came around the same time but they did not (laughs) um but yeah so that's the The uh, wolf man and that's Um, where we get a lot of our werewolf tropes like silver kills werewolves full moon Werewolves are really good at basketball. It's true. What movie are you talking about? (laughs) Uh, Teenage Werewolf. Oh my god. Right? (laughs) Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf. So, without this movie, we wouldn't have Teen Wolf. Yeah. And I can definitely... I I feel like people use the werewolf trope as, like, the this idea of, um, you know, you're becoming an animal even though you're a man. So I feel like using it as like a pu- puberty, pubescent sort yeah. of uh, analogy is kind of a, you know, it's an interesting idea. Just like how when we became men, we instantly grew all that hair. Yeah, I mean, you're getting hairy, you're really hungry all the time. Oh, Harry's different from Larry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's the werewolf. And finally, to round out our um our monster mash we have the creature from the black lagoon which i did a lot more research on the uh <laughs> I, I latched onto one one piece of information from the wikipedia article about uh the background behind the creature from the black lagoon so okay. um basically creature from black lagoon about um these explorers in the amazon rainforest who are like looking for this half man half fish which is called the gill man okay um and it was released in 3d what yeah 3d it it was released in 3d but in black and white 3d holy cats that's crazy and they were really trying to like push the 3d but it was already like dying out by that time (laughs) <laughs> but even like the movies that came out after were also in 3D and they were just like, no, 3D is the way of the future. <laughs> but it was not. Yeah. Not, even oh, to this yeah. day. Even to this yeah. day. I saw the like sixth or seventh Harry Potter movie in 3D. And well, it was actually, like, why is this I, in 3D? <laughs> well, I saw the I saw the remake of Beauty and the Beast in 3D. <laughs> was it good? <laughs> it was awesome. Yeah. Just like random like objects are coming yeah, exactly. at you that was for cool. like no reason. <laughs> I mean, the technology now is a lot better than it was back in 1957. Yeah. So was this 1957? Ow. That would definitely make this our latest monster movie. Oh yeah, this is the this is like the last original mm-hmm. monster movie that was created for the Universal Universe. Um, uh, I also have a note here. There was a character named Krusty Lucas. Right. The film. Yeah. And that that's, that's I think that's a good fact of itself. I don't yeah, think I don't, I don't have any other information about it. <laughs> uh, that's a great Krusty fact. Lucas. Uh but 
So, Stephen. Yeah. The 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 Gill Man was Gilman. inspired by uh, when producer William Allen was attending a 1941 dinner party at Orson Welles' house. Okay. Um, during the filming of Citizen Kane, um, at, and he was talking to Mexican cinematographer Gabriel Figueroa, when he told him about the myth of a half fish, half human creature in the Amazon rainforest. Ooh, wow! Um, and it's he told him the story that this 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 creature would come up once a year and claim a maiden. And after that, he leaves, and then the village is safe for a year. Not mm-hmm. unlike the story of Perseus. <laughs> yeah, Perseus and Theseus both have things like Obviously, that. Obviously, I remembered. Um, <laughs> which one saves saves the lady from the Hydra? Oh, that's Perseus in Andromeda. I know. <laughs> um, yes. So um, there was also a... Um, so that was where he kind of got the inspiration for the for Gilman, um, and I w- there's this uh, in my research. I found that there was a uh, uh, a researcher of the Amaz- of Amazonian imagery, Jesus Paez Lorio Lorario Lurairo, and he he talks about the Tupinamba of mm-hmm. Para. And um, not it's not it's not super great, but they talked about how like it was kind of like a, uh, a virginity test was Ooh. this girl would they would take a girl to um, this lake and there was a serpent which lived there, and if the girl was still a maiden, the creature would uh, just receive the presents that they would bring along with the with the girl and leave. Otherwise. She get eaten. Whoa! So, yeah, not a great, not great. But Gilman himself was inspired by a couple of woodcut designs. I've dropped a picture in our our notes here of the sea monk. Whoa! Um, as this creature that was has a bunch of like tentacle arms and mm-hmm. has the head of a monk. Yeah, <laughs> like a monk fish. Yeah. Yes. No, like a monk man. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just a couple of, um, couple of cryptids that may um, have inspired this are the map mapping mappingwari, mm-hmm. mappingwari, which um, in the Rio Branco region of Brazil. Um, is this is this animal that people have as as late as like 2017 have or 2007 have said that they have seen this large um, this large like huge like over seven foot tall animal that Whoa. goes through the forest and you know when it gets near you it may like it just like it can has the power of like just to knock you out just Dang. by being around it and they believe that it could be a living family of ground sloths <gasps> what oh <my> gosh. giant <laughs> sloths live, giant sloths that live in the amazon forest that have been undetected oh no. 
which that would be so scary and slow yeah well they think that the um (laughs) i don't know about that i I don't know much about ancient ground sloths but um when the amazonian people first were in the amazon the ground sloth was probably still existing in that time period like thousands of years ago oh interesting and so the the folklore has um still is still to this day right um another another cryptid that uh could that i think may be even more uh closely related to the gilman is the tapire iwara which is like a tapir jaguar water nymph of the Amazon. Whoa. Um, which it's like the size of a horse and um, has been spotted all over the the Amazon rainforest. Whoa. And so, you know, has the has the ability to to steal people's souls. Yeah. And so this is this is like the animal, the tapir, which is kind of like a little small hippo thing. Is that what it's supposed to be part? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, it's like a tapir and a jaguar. Oh, what? Oh, that's awesome. Yes. <laughs> that's so scary. And yeah. So if you're ever in the Amazon rainforest, watch out for this because it definitely exists. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Um, Gilman. Gilman. Um, so uh, I hope Stephen. we uh, answered some of your questions about... Well, I have some questions for you, Stephen. Oh, you do? Oh, yes. oh right, our daily quiz. So, Stephen, right. um, this is the uh, cryptid personality quiz. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ooh, okay. Um, I have a few questions, and you can answer these truthfully or non-truthfully so we sure. can see what we get, because I feel like if you answer the same as me, we'll get the same answer. Okay, should I so. take it at the same time as you? Well, I already took it. You can see oh, my okay. answer down there. Um, but, Stephen, oh. <laughs> first question. And I'll probably put in, like, some some tribal drum music here. Sure. Yeah. So, how big are you? Were you small-sized, <laughs> medium-sized, average-sized, above-average-sized, or extra-large? Um, Carl, I think I'm average-sized. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite type of food? Seafood? Anything sugary or salty? Barbecue? Tropical smoothie or fruit snacks? Or I don't have a favorite food. Mm, I'm going to have to go with barbecue on this one. Um, how competitive are you? Would you say prefers not to compete? Low-key and sensitive? Somewhat assertive? Strong-willed and assertive? Or extremely assertive and competitive? Um, well, I mean, I don't know if I can always be the best judge of myself, but maybe somewhat assertive. Somewhat assertive. Interesting. Um, how much time do you spend with friends or family? Would you say none? Keep to myself and family. Prefers company of small groups of friends. Popular and outgoing or extremely outgoing? Um, I don't know. Maybe popular and outgoing. Popular and outgoing. Ooh. Yeah. Well, I, I can't really describe myself as popular, but... I'm outgoing, definitely. Steven, I would say you're pretty popular. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, question number five. Do others find you good looking? Are you plain looking? <laughs> All right, but nothing striking. 
average looking with some nice attributes, good features and sexy, or incredibly attractive. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> I think I'm, I have good features and sexy is how Ooh. I would describe myself. Um, just, just trying to be honest here. <laughs> um, question six, Stephen. How would you rate your intelligence? Avoids intellectual pursuits, clever but prefers non-intellectual pursuits, intelligent, very intelligent, or out-of-this-world level genius. Wow, this is really more of a hubris test than it is a personality <laughs> test. Uh, I'm going to go with regular intelligent. Just intelligent. Just just intelligent. Yeah. I don't want to be struck down <laughs> by the gods. <laughs> Question seven. What is your athletic ability? None. Occasionally plays a sport. Enjoys sport for recreation. Plays sport competitively or extremely athletic and agile. I'm going to say enjoys sport for recreation. All right. Um, and question number eight. How much do you like traveling? Never travels? Stays close to home? Vacations are fun, but not essential. I love to travel. Mm-hmm. I've been everywhere. Ooh, wow. Uh, well, I haven't been everywhere, but I do love I've to been travel. everywhere, man. <laughs> All right. Are you is, ready, Stephen? Oh, is that it? That's it. Are you okay, ready? Let's see. You got Bigfoot. <laughs> Wait, so you got Sasquatch and I got Bigfoot? Did I get Sasquatch? Or did I get It says I am Sasquatch under your your got quiz. It. So I got Big I got Sasquatch. So you got Bigfoot. So we're kind of the same. Yeah, we're kind of the same but different. Yeah. Um how is Sasquatch different from Bigfoot? I don't know. Maybe maybe our next episode could be uh, cryptids. Well, then we shouldn't have done this one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, Stephen, or should I say Mm -hmm. Bigfoot? I'm glad that our our quiz had nothing to do with the rest of the (laughs) the rest of the content of this episode. Oh, I thought it was a good a good yes. Um, And yeah, um, I think we covered a lot of a lot of. a lot of good stuff. So yeah, just touching back on all the points to kind of round out our episode. Uh, the Phantom of the Opera, yeah, Frankenstein, yeah. Dracula, mm-hmm. the Mummy, the Invisible Man, the Wolfman, and right. the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that these movies were very important to American culture and um, the film industry of the time really kind of being the four forefront forerunners to a lot of modern horror movies. And um, I mean, their remakes of these movies are still coming out to Absolutely. this, to this day. The invisible man came out mm-hmm. this year, yeah, or last true. year. Um, we had a Dracula a couple of years ago. Yeah. I mean, Van Helsing. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. What would you say your favorite um, modern take on one of these movies is yeah thanks for asking i have to go with the um the uh brendan fraser mummy from like yes. is that late 90s early 2000s yes i believe that was 1999 yeah that, that came out so yeah that that, that was that i was definitely the right age group for that well no yeah. i guess i was like four but i must have watched it when i was a little bit older so well scorpion king first major motion picture uh acting role for the rock oh really oh that's mm-hmm. interesting wow he was just a little pebble then um, well, Carl. He was never a little pebble. He was always huge. <laughs> Giant. Um, um, 
Yeah, we, uh, well, I, you know, I really suggest if you haven't seen these movies, go out, maybe watch them with your kids, watch them with somebody who's, you know, maybe not that into horror, because it's a great way to get into the genre, if uh, that's what you're about. Yeah. Well, Stephen, um, thanks as always for joining yeah. me. Yeah, thank um, you. And we'll go ahead and sign out as we always do. As we always do. Later, nerds. Later, nerds. We'll, uh, we'll see you next time.